Hi, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. As mentioned previously, we're going to explore an overlook corner in the history of surgery, the short-lived but influential specialty of railway surgery. Now, this very much mirrors a specific period of time in the history of the U.S., but despite its brevity, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So let's hit the rails in this episode of Legends of Surgery. The period of time we're looking at covers just around 50 years, basically from the end of the Civil War to World War I. But over that time, America saw a massive change, the expansion westward. And with this came the need for transportation, leading to the development of a complex railroad system, the Arteries of America. The journalist John O'Sullivan gave a name to this movement in 1845, saying that it was Americans' manifest destiny to carry the great experiment of liberty to the edge of the continent. By 1869, the tracks of the Union Pacific Railroad and the Central Pacific Railroad were joined at a point called Promontory in the Utah Territory, a golden spike being driven into the rails to symbolize the completion of the first chain of railroads to span the North American continent. But with that great transportation of humanity came the need for medical care for both workers and passengers. Much of that need was urgent due to the frequent accidents associated with roads at the time and the extremely hazardous work of railroad construction. Given the near total lack of any kind of medical infrastructure in the New West, the role of the railroad surgeon was born. One article I read likened the idea of a company surgeon to that of the ship surgeon used in the Navy, comparing the wild and sparsely settled regions far from any position as being on the ocean, far from the nearest seaport. And likely railroading was as dangerous, if not more so, than being on a seafaring ship. Dangers included loss of hands or fingers from the coupling of rail cars, crush injuries when trains jumped the tracks, scalding injuries from high-pressure steam coming out of exploded boilers and more. Travelers and workers suffered heart attacks, strokes, seizures, etc. In 1900, the Interstate Commerce Commission reported that one in every 29 railway employees was injured on the job, and one in 399 died. To further illustrate the scope of trauma, in 1904 there were 10,046 fatalities of both employees and passengers from railway accidents. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad may have used physician services as early as the 1830s, and other lines soon caught on. They initially had contracts with private physicians along their routes, but the huge number of visits led to such high costs that they hired dedicated railroad physicians. As well, there were simply no private physicians to hire along some of the new routes in the West. Initially, these railway surgeons had to treat their patients wherever they could, such as dirty houses or hotel rooms along the tracks. Here's a description of the plight of an accident victim by Dr. Clinton Herrick, a railway surgeon, and we'll come back to him later. Quote, Take the usual instance of a man severely injured as, for example, having one or both arms or legs crushed. He was usually tied up with rope, old rags, soiled handkerchiefs, or anything else lying about, lifted into the first train, possibly sometime after being hurt, with his crushed members dangling behind him unsupported then sent along the road many miles in a cold, damp car, each start and jar of which would almost close the scene, only soon after to be hustled into an ambulance and hurried to the hospital. There he presents a pallid, grimy appearance, his pulseless, cold, stupefied, the crushed arm or leg so mixed up with clothing, gravel, sticks, etc., that the whole mass looks like nothing but bloody rubbish. He has been jostled and bled to death, and so he dies, end quote. One railway surgeon complained that, quote, Every injured man has a right to expect proper treatment, and these operations out in the woods or on the back porch of some filthy house are sometimes criminal, end quote. Using hotel rooms for emergency care was less than ideal, for they were obviously not well-equipped, and railroads accumulated large bills for room charges, including the added expense of replacing bloodstained furniture. One of the solutions was to promote the development and use of hospital rail cars, which could be taken to the site of a serious injury. 
This provided a clean, well-stocked environment to stabilize the patient, where the surgeon could control bleeding, clean wounds, and even perform major emergency surgery under either ether or chloroform. The first cars entered service around 1894 on the Central Railway of New Jersey and the Baltimore and Ohio Southwestern Railroad. A typical car contained a holding for three or four patients and a fully stocked operating room. I'll put some pictures up on Twitter. Eventually, as they grew, the railroads had to hire chief and local physician surgeons. By the 1890s, most of the major railroad carriers had some form of in-house medical organization. In 1896, just one railroad, the Missouri Pacific, treated more than 29,000 patients in its medical system and clinics. How could they manage this? Well, eventually railroad companies would open their own hospitals close to the tracks. The Central Pacific Line opened one of the first in Sacramento, California on February 1, 1870. It was originally called the Central Pacific Hospital and was devoted exclusively to railroad employees. At their peak, there were about 35 railway hospitals open in the U.S. with a total of 3,700 beds. Now, some were small facilities no bigger than a house, while others were large medical centers like the 300-bed Illinois Central Hospital in Chicago or the 450-bed Southern Pacific Hospital in San Francisco. In fact, the Southern Pacific Hospital was just the second facility in the U.S. to operate an intensive care unit. And these larger centers offered a full range of services, including consultants from various medical specialties, and even ran nursing schools, internships, and residency training programs. Dr. Thomas Huntington, a Harvard graduate, joined the Central Pacific Surgical Staff in 1882 and became the chief surgeon in 1885. Under his direction, the hospital established the first antiseptic operating room on the West Coast and cut fatalities in major surgery from 30 to 40% down to 6 to 7%. Dr. Huntington did the first appendectomy for appendicitis in California in about 1890, which you may recall was just four years after Dr. Fitz coined the term appendicitis and recommended surgery for its treatment. See podcast 58. Dr. Huntington was an example of one of the railway surgeons working in a large, almost academic center. But I thought it'd be interesting to meet someone on the other end of that spectrum, and certainly a fascinating character in her own right, Dr. Sophie Herzog. Sophie Delagoth was born in Vienna, Austria on February 4th, 1846 to a family full of successful doctors and surgeons. In fact, she married a surgeon, Dr. August Herzog, at the age of 14, and gave birth to 15 children, including three sets of twins. Sadly, eight did not survive to reach childhood. The family moved to New York, where she decided to study medicine, but due to the lack of access for women in the U.S., Sophie returned to Vienna for her studies. She came back to New York to further her studies at the Eclectic Medical College of the City of New York. Anyways, Dr. Herzog practiced medicine for nine years in New Jersey. Her husband then passed away, so she moved to Brazoria, Texas, with her youngest child, then a schoolteacher, and her son-in-law in February of either 1895 or 1896. Brazoria was known for its rough and rowdy gunslingers, and people were frequently shot and needed care. As she was the only doctor in town, this fell to her. In fact, Dr. Herzog became an expert at extracting bullets. She realized that probing inside for the bullet caused more trauma to the area. Her innovation was to elevate the patient, letting gravity bring the bullet to her. Using this method, Dr. Herzog quickly collected 24 bullets, which she had made into a special necklace with the lead slug separated by gold links. Dr. Herzog became a well-known figure around town, acting outside of social norms. She rode her horse wherever she needed to go, riding astride instead of side saddle as ladies of the day were expected, and had a local tailor create a split skirt for her better mobility. She also kept her curly hair as short as a man's and wore a man's top hat. By 1897, she had become the first female member of the South Texas Medical Society, and also the first woman to be elected its vice president. So why am I telling you about her? 
Well, in 1907, Dr. Sophie Herzog became the chief surgeon of the St. Louis, Brownsville, and Mexican Railway of Texas, becoming the first female chief surgeon in railroad surgical history. In fact, when the Eastern officials found out that a woman had been hired, they sent her a telegram stating that they would understand if she quit because the job was not fit for a lady. Furious, Dr. Herzog fired back with a heated telegram of her own, saying that they could fire her when she was unable to do her job. And that day would not come for many years as she practiced with the railroad until suffering a massive stroke at the age of 79. She died on July 21, 1925, just before her 80th birthday, and was laid to rest wearing her ever-present bullet necklace. Given the growing number of railroad surgeons across the U.S., the need for a national association became apparent. In 1888, the National Association of Railway Surgeons was formed at their inaugural meeting in Chicago. By 1895, it had 1,500 members out of the estimated 6,000 railroad surgeons in practice. A rival organization called the American Academy of Railway Surgeons was formed due to infighting, but it was the smaller of the two and they eventually merged in 1904 to become the American Association of Railway Surgeons. The National Association published the transactions of its annual meeting in Railway Age, but in mid-1894 it began a bi-weekly publication called The Railway Surgeon. Over 100 original scientific articles appeared in its pages each year. There were even textbooks written, the most famous of which had the unwieldy title of, quote, Railway Surgery, a practical work on the special department of railway surgery for railway surgeons, end quote, by Christian Stemmen and published in 1890. Christian Barry Stemmen was a professor of surgery at Fort Wayne College of Medicine. Chapter titles included Fractures, Hemorrhage from Railway Injuries, Concussion of the Brain, Burns and Scalds, and Transfusion. It was essentially a trauma care textbook. It even covered such things as transportation of injured railway men, temporary treatment in cases of railway injuries, and shock in railway injuries. Here's a quote from the intro, quote, The great army of railway surgeons recognize the fact that in the treatment of railway injuries, no special instructions are given in our medical colleges, and that no textbook on surgery especially treats of this class of cases. Consequently, there is but little literature on this rapidly growing specialty. It was owing to the discussion and the great interest manifested by the railway surgeons that the publication of this work was undertaken, end quote. Another was, quote, Railway Surgery, a Handbook on the Management of Injuries, end quote, by Clinton Herrick, a surgeon for the Delaware and Hudson and Fitchburg Railway, who gave us a description of the injured railroad worker at the beginning of the podcast. That textbook was published in 1899. It devoted an entire chapter to sterilization techniques, describing how to build a lightweight, portable sterilizer for travel use, even noting that if all else fails, the surgeon could obtain boiling water from the locomotive boiler for sterilization. Interestingly, it touched on some other areas of responsibility of the railway surgeon, including performing pre-employment examinations, the public health problems of the railroad worker, i.e. car sanitation and disinfection, and jurisprudence in railway surgery, indicating the occupational health issues that began to arise for the railway surgeon with the ever-growing industrialization of the railroads. Now, despite having a national association and dedicated textbooks, railway surgery did not have a special training program or certification board. Practitioners learned on the job and from the journals and conferences they produced. Railway surgeons never got the respect they deserved from their colleagues, which may be why they have been somewhat forgotten in the history of surgery. There's scant mention of railway surgery in the surgical textbooks of the day, and the specialty did not appear in the Index Medicus, which is the major index of medical literature, until 1903. Yet by World War I, railroad medical organizations provided care to nearly 2 million employees and employed about 10% of all physicians in the U.S., which was approximately 14,000 doctors working either full or part-time.
One reason may be that because they maintained busy general medical practices in addition to their surgical duties, other surgical national associations did not recognize them as a specialty. Another issue is that railroads often selected their surgeons through competitive bidding, with the contract going to the lowest bidder. Medical associations were not used to the idea of internal competition and viewed it as a threat to doctors' incomes. Many medical societies denied membership to all railway surgeons and pressed for resolutions to declare contract medicine unethical. So let's get a bit more into the organization of railway medicine. At the time, workers in any field had to get their medical care privately at their own expense, but given the high risk of injury to employees, the railroads made an exception. The poor treatment of passengers and employees created costly legal liabilities and unfilled shifts, which led to the development of the railway surgeon network. But the other part of the equation was that the employees had to use the system. By having their own hospitals and clinics, the company controlled the choice of doctor and managed the medical care services that employees were obliged to use. So the companies divided the cost, which employees paid a fixed amount of mandatory payroll deductions, and the company paid the rest. Now, anytime you, there's a mandatory pay cut, you're going to have upset employees. But eventually, the workers grew to accept the plans, and even the few companies that had a voluntary opt-in healthcare plan had a high rate of joining. In 1896, the plant system, a Florida railroad network, showed 98% of workers took up the plan despite it being voluntary. This was probably because most plans not only covered medical expenses, but also daily cash benefit for illness and even a death benefit to help loved ones pay for a funeral. This was essentially the birth of managed care, with hospital plans and other healthcare provision schemes. Some of the larger railroad companies had claims departments and relief societies to help disabled workers. This leads us to the next issue, which is that of disability claims. Since railroad surgeons examined injured persons filing claims or lawsuits against the railroads, their assessment of degree of disability or validity of injuries claimed had a huge impact on whether or not and how much money was awarded. This created an awkward conflict of interest. Do doctors work for the best interest of their patients or the company that employs them? Certainly some physicians outside of railroad medicine question the ethics of this situation. Herrick's textbook, which was mentioned earlier, devoted a whole chapter on medical jurisprudence, and the Railway Surgeon Journal often covered the topic. There's actually a story in the Railway Surgeon about the famous Flying Freemans, a family of slip-and-fall artists that made a career out of bamboozling physicians and swindling railroads. One part of the story was that Jenny Freeman, one of the daughters of the family, was injured on the Chicago City Railroad on January 9, 1894, and was ostensibly paralyzed from the waist down. She settled for just $500. Yet by June 28, 1894, less than six months later, she had recovered enough to ride the Illinois Central, slip on a banana peel, and become paralyzed all over again. This was the kind of thing that the railway surgeons were afraid of missing. So let's change lines here, so to speak, and talk about the role of the railway surgeon in public health. Given that they were usually the only doctors around, they also had to work on medical issues in addition to their surgical duties. They performed preventative vaccinations on workers at risk for malaria, smallpox, and typhoid. In the winter of 1881-82, one railroad line administered 12,000 free vaccines to employees and their families during a smallpox outbreak, and only two members died. In the mid-1920s, the Cotton Belt Line distributed nearly 70,000 doses of quinine a year and were able to cut the hospital malaria admission rate for section workers from 215 per thousand to 2 per thousand. Railway surgeons were among the first physicians to make the workplace safer by administering pre-employment physical exams and testing worker vision and hearing. They broke ground in the diagnosis of colorblindness, which could cause fatal accidents when impaired workers failed to correctly see colored signals and lights. 
In fact, color vision testing became a prominent feature of railway surgery near the end of the 19th century. They also did vision testing with the familiar Snellen chart, that's the one with the huge E on the top, and hearing tests by pocket watch. The patient had to be able to hear the watch ticking from five feet to pass the test. Rudimentary, but these were some of the earliest attempts to use medical screening to enhance workplace safety. One of the other areas that railway surgeons pioneered was first aid. Considering the vast distances to be covered and the frequency of accidents, this is not surprising. After all, they couldn't be everywhere at all times. So they developed emergency packs containing medications, sterile dressings, and other supplies to be carried to the scene. Some even trained railroad workers to treat patients on the scene, teaching them first aid principles using mannequins, skeletons, and charts. It apparently was effective too, as one chief surgeon, W.E. Estes, said in 1892 that his fatality rate after major amputations declined from 7.89% before the use of first aid to 3.67% after its use. So what happened to this once thriving specialty? Probably a number of factors were involved. After World War I, many small towns and remote areas were growing and had their own hospitals, ending the need for specialized railway medical clinics. Workers and passengers increasingly recovered by their own private medical insurance and wanted to see doctors of their own choosing. And the rise of automobiles, trucks, and airplanes reduced the railway's income, making it harder for them to maintain the salaries of doctors and their staff and pay for the upkeep of specialized hospitals. Eventually, many railroad hospitals accepted private patients to help fill unused space and generate revenue, but this could only stem the changing tide for so long, and the last railroad hospital was sold or closed by the early 1970s, and the remaining railway surgeons dispersed, either setting up private offices or joining other practices. The journal The Railway Surgeon also began to fade. In 1920, only 44 manuscripts were published, and there were less and less articles on surgery. It went through two title changes, and by 1921 was called Surgical Journal Devoted to Traumatic and Industrial Surgery, which was described as being devoted to general surgery and its specialties, railway, industrial, and emergency surgery, and associated medicine. Over the next six decades, it then became the International Journal of Medicine and Surgery, then Industrial Medicine, the Journal of Occupational Diseases and Traumatic Surgery, next Industrial Medicine and Surgery, then International Journal of Occupational Health and Safety, and presently, Occupational Health and Safety, a nod to the many hats worn by the railway surgeon. While the specialty may be gone, but its legacy lives on, railway surgeons provided the first known instances of organized traumatology. Through their textbooks and journal writings, they showed that trauma surgery as a form of specialized surgery was important to healthcare, and the development of trauma care as a distinct area of practice can be traced back to these innovating pioneers. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we'll return to our ongoing series, Better Know an Instrument, and cover the surgeon for whom the Metzenbaum scissors are named after. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening.